0: We're reading from Hosea chapter 14, verses 1 to 9. Return, Israel, to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our sins and receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. Assyria cannot save us. We will not mount war horses, we will never again say our gods to what our own hands have made, for in you the fatherless find compassion. I will heal their waywardness and love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. I will be like the dew to Israel, he will blossom like a lily, like a cedar of Lebanon he will send down his roots. His young shoots will grow. His splendor will be like an olive tree. His fragrance like a cedar of Lebanon. People will dwell again in his shade. They will flourish like the corn. They will blossom like the vine. Israel's fame will be like the wine of Lebanon. Ephraim, what more have I to do with idols? I will answer him and care for him. I am like a flourishing juniper, your fruitfulness comes from me. Who is wise? Let them realize these things. Who is discerning? Let them understand. The ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble in them. Thank
1: you, John, and uh, thank you very much for your welcome. Thank you for the conversations and questions and comments this week. It's been a rare privilege and a joy to be here with you and studying together with you. And thank you for coming back this morning. Um, I hope you feel that there is going to be some kind of payoff. Um, I certainly hope so. We'll see what happens. But uh, uh, I think... uh, What we will find in these remaining chapters of Hosea is just a sense of God's extraordinary provision and overarching purposes where things finally, eventually, slot into place. I remember good friends of ours in uh, Uganda who had been through a very difficult time and were actually trying to adopt a small child who needed urgent surgery overseas Um, that wasn't available in Uganda, but they couldn't get this child out of the country until he'd got full adoption papers and got the passport and everything else. Um, And I remember them saying just a few weeks before everything suddenly slotted into place that uh, they were trusting in the Lord and that they trusted that God was never late. The frustration sometimes is that he's rarely early. He's on time. He knows what he's doing, and I hope that in some of the sort of confusion and the sort of kaleidoscope of the book of Hosea, we've begun to have a sense of that. But if not before now, I really hope and pray that that will come today. Now, I'm sure you've been in the situation a thousand times when you're chatting to a skeptical friend, uh, and they come out with one of those questions that they feel is a total sort of slap-down zinger, you know, a sort of, this will answer it all, this will silence them, those pesky Christians, this will sort it out. Uh, And it's almost as if sometimes they've been the first to think of them or as if you've never considered this problem before, but now that you have, you're just going to give it all up immediately, and they're going to go away feeling quite smug. So you know the sort, Um, oh, you're not one of those people who takes the Bible literally after you, are you? Well, it's not as simple as that, and uh, I take it literally, if the passage or chapter that I'm looking at demands that I take it literally. I take pay attention to the type of literature that we're dealing with, the genre. So I sometimes say, uh, equally smugly I guess, well I take it literarily. Yeah, I'm quite pleased with that. It doesn't go down so well though. Or, you know, how come there are 30,000 denominations in the world? They can't all be right, surely. Who do we turn to? What do we believe? Come on, you just just pick the one that suits you best. It's not really about the truth. It's about what's true for you and all that stuff. Well, it's not as simple as that. I mean, yes, there is great diversity, but there's actually remarkable convergence and unity. And there are all kinds of reasons for being part of one or, or none. And you don't just have to think that everybody else is wrong by being part of one particular denomination. Or there's this old chestnut. I'm sure you've had this one. Okay, so if God is all-powerful, can he create a rock that is too heavy for him to lift? If not, why not? Oh, groan. Now if that's the kind of sort of dilemma to send your brain into meltdown, all I would say is that I think that the Lord has far more important things to be getting on with than doing that. But uh, the real challenge, and I think this is the key thing, the real challenge that God has is a far more serious dilemma, and it's one that actually barely crosses the minds of skeptics and in some ways believers alike. We've already touched on it earlier this week. It's this. Here's the divine dilemma. How does a holy and faithful God live with sinful and faithless people? And that is a dilemma that is far harder to resolve than we can possibly imagine. It is beyond the wit of of man and woman. We cannot do it. We have never been able to come up with a solution that manages to dovetail justice and mercy perfectly. We veer in one direction or the other and therefore can never satisfy all. Well, remarkably, even in this extraordinary book of Hosea, we find some resolutions to this dilemma. But in common, I think with the whole of the Old Testament, in fact, it's not just Hosea, but in common with the whole of the Jewish scriptures, all we have is pointers. Pointers rather than the full picture. Now, I sometimes think that when people get into the business of the fulfillments of Old Testament prophecy and trying to see how the, the, the pieces of the Old Testament jigsaw fit with the New Testament... Uh, It's a bit like star constellations in the heavens, in the night sky. And, uh, you know, sometimes if you've been out uh, on a a clear night, I guess if you live in a built-up urban area, it's pretty difficult because of the light pollution to see what's uh, up there. But... uh, supposing you go out on a clear night out in um, the hills or, or somewhere, and somebody is pointing out the stars and the constellations, and, and it seems just slightly absurd. <laughs> I mean, they're just some sort of dots and, and, and things around the place, rather a lot, in fact, too many to count. And, and they say, oh, look, there's, there's the crab. <laughs> um, well, you could have fooled me. I can't see a crab up there. Um, or there's a man with a bow and arrow, oh really, and you know, for all you know, the next thing they're going to point out is a Formula One car, it, it just doesn't really make much sense. Then they might flesh out the picture with some kind of drawing, so um, here is a case in point, so the top left picture is of actually what in this country we call the plough, in the United States they call it the Big Dipper. And uh, there you see, Ah, oh, okay, well, the, 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 li- the dots are, are, are joined. You get the lines, and it begins to sort of take some kind of shape. Okay, well, a, a plow, I suppose. I mean, I guess the problem is most of us don't really use plows, so we don't really have much experience of that. But I'll take your word for it. There's a plow, okay. Um, what the, you then see is that this plow is part of some bigger constellation, actually Ursa Major, which is uh, the Latin for the great bear. And that seems a bit far-fetched. And so some artists then take these dots and they sort of flesh it out um, so that uh, actually you begin to see the sort of the bigger deal. And so suddenly you look up and lo and behold, there's this whacking great bear. (laughs) Who knew? (laughs) It does seem a little bit arbitrary, but there it is in all its glory. The interesting thing is, though, and I found this, that, that once it's been pointed out a few times and you begin to sort of know where to look for these things, the next time you look up in your own, actually you can see, oh, I, mean, I know where to find the plow now, with, with great regularity and much to the boredom of anyone with me. <laughs> and then I remember when someone first pointed out how you can use the plow to find Polaris, the North Star. And actually, that's uh, easy because, you know, the seven brightest stars in the northern sky, in the northern hemisphere, form the plow. And then basically, if you take the direction of the bottom edge of the bucket, uh, as in the, the, the end of the plow, and follow the trajectory of that line, there you see is Polaris. So now you know you have that for free. You didn't even have to pay for that. But to be honest... All the patterns and pictures seem, well, they do seem a bit fanciful to me. It's all a bit arbitrary. Joining the dots, but seeing whatever you want to think and what you feel you ought to see out there. And that is one of the many reasons why I think following star signs in astrology, which is different from astronomy, why following your star signs is so utterly ludicrous, because it really is arbitrary to see these patterns and assume that that basically represents some kind of reality It is utterly absurd. And I know that sometimes people feel that when it comes to joining the dots of the Old Testament to see New Testament fulfillment, it feels a bit similar. It's almost sometimes just as arbitrary. Okay, well, there are these dots. I look at the dots of these points and events and people in the Old Testament I think well yeah that's all quite interesting there's the story and then someone comes along and puts lines between these dots and say oh yeah that's Jesus and you think really Um, okay I don't quite follow but I'll take your word for it and so we can sometimes feel a, a, a little insecure about whether or not this is actually going on? Is this what the writers of the Bible intended and expected? Is this what God is doing with this huge book written by well over 40 people over a millennium in at least three different languages in all kinds of different contexts? War, peace, exile, home, you name it. All kinds of different things. Are we honestly saying that these dots scattered through the Old Testament can be joined to form a very coherent, fleshed-out picture of the gospel. Well, I want to say I'm absolutely convinced that they can, and that it's not arbitrary. But we do need care. We do need to see that... Okay, not every dot can be joined with every other dot to draw uh, with lines that actually all slot into place. We, just, we need to be a bit careful, methodical, and actually use the Bible's method for doing it. We don't just see a word, look it up in a concordance, one of those dictionaries that has all the references. We don't just take a, a concordance mention and then assume every time that word gets mentioned, it always means the same thing or is to be linked. We need to be guided by how the Bible joins these dots so that actually we see the constellations as God revealed them. And so what I want to do in this session is to take four constellations, I think that actually have some of their roots in the book of Hosea, and just see how joining those dots helps us see Christ. And I think just as looking up and seeing the plow and the great bear and all the other ones, once they've been pointed out, you can't fail to see it again the next time you look. It makes so much sense. So let's think about this first constellation. And we could put this under the sort of theme. I mean, basically, these are four themes. If you don't quite sort of relate to the constellation idea, just think of these as Four themes that we get in the Old Testament, but particularly in Hosea. Of course, in the rest of the Bible, there are many, many others. But with these four, I I think the first is that we see Jesus related to God's people and indeed fulfilling God's people. So let's start with the very first verse of our section, chapter 11 verse 1, perhaps one of the most. After six, chapter 6, and I desire hesed, not sacrifice, I suspect this verse is the second most famous one in Hosea. Hosea 11, and verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And the reference point is completely obvious. After all that we've been thinking about uh, and seeing this placed within the context of the story of the people of Israel. We know exactly what this is talking about. As we saw before, this is just like God getting down the, the photo albums, the family history, the family albums, and, and just looking back onto the toddler years. <laughs> Israel's like an infant in those early family photos. Hardly out of nappies, only just walking. Walking. And like any proud dad, God looks with deep affection, and out of Egypt I called my son, and he came. In other words, his son, his firstborn son, and you can see this in the book of Exodus, the people are called God's firstborn son. So this is Exodus imagery quite explicitly. In Egypt, they were stuck enslaved, going nowhere fast. But God called them out and brought them out. His intervention is, in fact, the only conceivable way that their circumstances could have changed. Without him, they were powerless. They were stuck. They were slaves. They were chained, overwhelmed, outnumbered, oppressed. They were helpless, rather like a baby, in fact, A baby depends on others for everything. And this was the foundational event for Israel. And there's no doubt in Hosea 11, is there? I hope it's clear to you. There's no doubt whatsoever that Hosea has a past event in mind. He's looking back. This is not a prophecy of the future. This is a reflection on the past, isn't it? It's obvious. Which is particularly why skeptical scholars take issue with Matthew's gospel. Because Matthew quotes this verse. Matthew chapter 2. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now, if ever there was an illustration of an arbitrary joining of the dots in sort of some weird constellation attempt, this would be it, don't you think? What is Matthew doing here? It's not a fulfillment. You know, Hosea 11, he's not predicting the future. He's describing the past. So it sounds very dodgy. It sounds as if, you know, To be frank, what Matthew is doing is just, oh, that's a good verse, that that's kind of fits with the story, let's just sort of bung this in, I won't explain the context, I'll just throw it in, and then suddenly people will feel more confident that Jesus is some part of something else. I mean, that's what he's accused of. If you read many se- um, skeptical commentaries, they accuse Matthew of just simply twisting Old Testament scripture. And I hope you can see why. But as so often, we mustn't underestimate Matthew's intelligence. He's not an idiot, believe it or not. He knows what he's doing. And in fact, in his early chapters, those particularly chapters 1 and 2, and this is a, a really interesting study you can do for yourself uh, at some point, <clears throat> Matthew is doing much, something much more subtle than just amassing crude proof texts. As if they're all somehow predictions that get fulfilled at the Nativity. You see, he sees that Hosea speaks of the people as my son, God's son. And what we have at the Exodus is, if you like, the great precedent for God's greater intervention. The great precedent for God's greater intervention. He's saying, okay, look, I did this once, and I can and will do it again. I will rescue a people from slavery. But more than that, Jesus is—sorry, uh, Matthew is using this to underline that Jesus is also God's son. There was a sense in which the king of Israel... Particularly seen in David, the king of Israel is the embodiment of the people of Israel, which is why it's so desperate when the kings behave so badly and disobey the covenant. But uh, the king of Israel, therefore, was often known as the son of God, which is why you have the coronation psalm, for instance, that says, today you have become my son, used of the king's anointing. And and that is all part of what flows up to this point. And Matthew knows all of that, and he's saying, Jesus is God's Son, as God's King is God's Son. And out of Egypt I brought my son is referring back to the Exodus as a precedent for what God can do and will do and does do with the baby Christ. This approach to how Old Testament and New Testament fit together is, well, the technical term is is typology. So the Exodus is a type, a form, a precedent of what Christ will do, even actually as an infant, and that fits precisely with how Hosea describes Israel's past, isn't it? Like an infant in the photo album, Jesus is the true Israel. That's what Matthew's saying. He is the embodiment of the true Israel. And that is our grounds for hope because where Israel, the nation, went wrong in the past, and man, have we seen that again and again. And it's a grisly picture. Israel, the person, will get it right We find exactly the same pattern. If we flick back to Exodus now, we find, uh, sorry, to um, Hosea, exactly the same in chapter 12, verse 9. And then a third time in chapter 13. Just turn to 13, will you? And verse 4. But I have been Yahweh your God, the Lord your God, ever since you came out of Egypt, You shall acknowledge no God but me, no saviour except me. I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of burning heat. When I fed them, they were satisfied. When they were satisfied, they became proud, and they forgot me. You beginning to see how this works now? God starts here again with the exodus itself, and then moves on to what follows The wanderings in the wilderness. It was there that God provided manna. uh, One way of translating the word is simply sort of, what's it? What is this stuff? I don't know, but we live off it, so that's great. The manna and water for the people. He showed his care in the land of burning heat. Their wanderings in the Sinai Desert took them to a part of the world that is, I guess, the Middle East equivalent of Death Valley in the States. I did some digging around, and in parts of the Sinai Peninsula today, the average summer temperatures are around 35 degrees C or 95 Fahrenheit. That's average. With zero annual rainfall. Zero. (laughs) Human life is simply unsustainable, unaided, It's as simple as that. So just as Israel's Egyptian slavery was inescapable, so Israel's desert survival was impossible. Both were entirely dependent on God and his intervention. All this God did, and they recognized it. They knew it to begin with. When I fed them... They were satisfied. But Yahweh knows human psychology, doesn't he? He gets it. He knows us inside out. He's uncomfortably accurate. And the sequence is spot on, isn't it? When they were satisfied, they became proud. Then they forgot me. It's a direct echo of Gomer in chapters 1, and three. Well, what does Jesus do in Matthew four? Well, no sooner has he launched his public profile through being baptized by John the Baptist. That in itself was a weird one. That's him announcing in public that he is identified with the people, with the sinful people, even though he doesn't have sins of his own to need repentance. And then what does he do? He heads off into the wilderness to be tested. He fasts for 40 days, following the precedent of Israel for 40 years. In other words, fasting is an indication of your total dependence on the God who exists to sustain your life, because otherwise it's humanly impossible. But where Israel failed, and here's the crucial thing, Jesus succeeds. The devil is desperate to trip him up, isn't he? Um, To suck him over to his team. And how does Jesus fight back? Well, you remember, he fights back by citing Scripture. Not just any Scripture, though. His three quotations come from just two chapters in the Old Testament from just one book. And which book, pray, is that? Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 8 and Deuteronomy 6. Now, that is no accident. I wonder if you can figure out why. Why does Jesus go there? Well, As we saw yesterday, Deuteronomy is Moses' last will and testament before the people enter the land. Basically, the, the sum of it, in a way, is Moses saying, Don't make your parents' mistakes. Don't do what we did. Instead, follow the covenant. But it's more than that, it's a second recitation of the law of the Ten Commandments after the desert wanderings, to remind them, to prepare them for the future of living in the land. This is what land life looks like. To remind them of how Israel has failed and how they should proceed. Now, of course, (laughs) what is to come would be full of failure. That's why Hosea has a ministry at all full of failure until Jesus. For the first time. For the first time in history, there is somebody, just, just somebody, who keeps the law perfectly. As he says in Matthew 5, just after this, don't think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Where the people failed, the people's embodiment fulfills. And when he was in in the desert doing what seemed impossible, what was impossible, fasting for 40 days, God sustains him and provides for him just as he always did. Because you see, that's the nature of God. That's what he's like. He's faithful. So there are just three different ways with the, the, the nativity escape from uh, Egypt, from the fasting in the desert, and from the uh, claims to uh, obey the law after being baptized. Basically, Jesus fulfills these points of light in Israel's history in the covenant against, if you like, the dark sky of the Old Testament narrative of Israel's failure. There are points of light... In the darkness. And when you join those dots together, you begin to see ah, so that's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is the embodiment of God's people who actually enables people to be God's people. But here's the second Jesus and God's throne. Come back to Hosea 11. I mean, after all we've been thinking about this week, it's hard not to miss the main direction of this book. God is on the throne, but he is not deaf and blind. He's not a log that people worship or some, some metal that gets molten and then formed into some sort of shape of a calf or a bird or an animal or whatever it is. He's not deaf and blind, and he's not ignorant of what's going on. He knows. He knows. His assessment cuts to the heart because he can read the heart. He knows what people really are thinking. So, chapter 11, verse 7 My people are determined to turn from me. Even though they call me God most high, I will by no means exalt them. God knows the heart. He sees straight through the claims to faithfulness. We're faithful, God. We acknowledge you, but he knows. What's going on? He knows they're false and that in their hearts they're determined to turn from me. It's not just what it looks like on the surface, he knows their hearts and he knows their determination. I just wonder whether there is a little danger, an unexpected danger perhaps, when we read this kind of analysis. For example, if you spend even a short time on social media, um, you will be all too familiar with this phenomenon. What am I talking about? Well, it's the presumption of dire and dark motives lurking in any opponent. The presumption, I say. Not the knowledge, the presumption that if somebody is arguing with you, or opposed to you, or a policy that you're advocating, then their motives must be dark, if not evil. The flip side of this presumption is to presume that everybody who defends you, or your position, or your policy, or whatever it is, must be as pure as the driven snow. (laughs) Because they're on my team, well of course. I mean, you know, if somebody agrees with me, well, they must be all right. <laughs> but if people think differently from me, well, there must be something profoundly wrong with them. Because what I think is just completely obvious. One grim historical example of this comes from the dark days of the Soviet Union. Psychiatrists literally would write and be awarded PhDs on the psychology of the capitalist or the democrat because believing in the morality of communism and the will of the party was so obviously right so if you don't follow that line there must be something wrong with you because it's not with the policy and so these psychiatrists in the pay of the government, would be doing all they could to dig around for all kinds of causes and cures. Countless people literally were sent to the gulag, to the labor camps in Siberia. Countless others ended up in asylums and placed on life-altering, mind-altering medication. I mean, that is the logical extreme. But we see it every day in... Milder form, even today. Like tweets describing the evil of the Tory or Labour parties. Or discussions about theological disagreement that get reduced to catch-all labels to disparage or discredit. Oh, you can't trust Jim and what he says because he's gone all liberal. Oh, Jane always makes such unhelpful comments because she's such a fundamentalist. I even heard last month of a senior pastor in this country, who shall remain nameless, describe a believer who asked legitimate questions about an issue. This pastor described that person in private, but nonetheless sincerely, as an enemy of the cross. Why apply Paul's Philippian verdict on legalists to this person. Oh, because apparently he wants to destroy the leader's ministry. And that's enough to qualify him as an enemy of the cross. Well, for starters, using such a devastating le- label means logically in the context of Philippians and the, leader, uh, the, 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 the um, individual in question means that that person is damned to hell and by no means a Christian. An enemy of the cross is someone who rejects the cross as the means to be saved. It is an incredibly powerful thing to say of anybody. When I heard that this had been said of somebody else, I couldn't get it out of my head. It kept me awake at night. And I just felt like saying, well, how on earth do you know that? When I know for a fact that the person described in this way is a long-standing member of a local church who has been through all kinds of issues, doesn't get everything right by any stretch, but is trying to serve the Lord and is open to be corrected. But actually the crime in question was simply to ask some legitimate questions about how money was being spent. An enemy of the cross. But secondly, how on earth does this leader know Can he read this brother's heart and motives? Does he possibly have a way of being able to see the invisible? And is the reason for asking these questions seriously to destroy a ministry? Or just to call for some integrity and transparency? Isn't it as likely? Now, I grant you, it might well be that there is a motive to destroy a ministry. I don't know. I'm not sort of getting involved in that particular issue. I'm just simply asking the question, couldn't it just possibly be also interpreted as someone being motivated by a desire for truth and openness to protect the vulnerable, perhaps? That's a legitimate interpretation of why someone might ask these questions. No, no, they're out to destroy my ministry. They're an enemy of the cross. And as recent years have proved, discrediting the questioner is the classic tactic of the person trying to maintain power and position. I'm incredibly nervous of claims to read other people's hearts and motives. After all, I don't actually always even know myself. I sometimes don't even know why I said or did something. How can anybody else? So surely we must be wary of claiming abilities that only God possesses. Only God has the superpower of telepathy. And God in Christ. So you remember Matthew 9, the famous moment in Matthew's account when the man is lowered through the roof to be healed. What do we find? Well, there are teachers of the law at the back, muttering, murmuring, thinking. Thinking. And Matthew tells us this. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Just a couple of pages before, in Matthew 7, what does Jesus say about the kingdom? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Jesus Knows hearts, just as the God of Hosea knows hearts. He knows when Israel Ephraim is turning against him. The voice of Yahweh through Hosea and the voice of Jesus are the same. That is why as we come back to Hosea 13, it is so grimly ironic. Hosea 13 verse 9 You are destroyed, Israel, because you're against me, against your helper. Where's your king that he may save you? Where are your rulers and all your towns of whom you said, Give me a king and princes? So I, in my anger, I gave you a king, and in my wrath I took him away. As we saw before, the people asked for a king to be like the other nations when actually they never were like the other nations. And when the split between the nations takes place, There's a whole bunch of kings in the north who basically, well, there's all kinds of ways and means by which they came to the throne. And when eventually the Assyrians do come, these people they'd sought treaties with before, this northern kingdom will be no more. God will remove the throne from Samaria. And if God the king has come to judge, there is nobody. No authority, no human king, no one to turn to. Is this not what lies behind Jesus' own warnings in Matthew 24 and 25 about the day of his return? Jesus on the throne who knows Matthew 24, let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great distress. God, the judge on his throne, the one who sees and knows. Who do they turn to then? Who do we turn to? If Jesus the King is against you, then who can be for you? Thank the Lord then that our God has a dilemma at all because he must be holy and must judge. In fact, we've seen that. Hopefully in the course of this book, we've been yearning for that. All the oppression, the cruelty, the injustice, the abuse of young girls forced to be prostitutes. Surely we say, come God, do something, judge this, stop this. We want that. But there's a dilemma. How does a holy God bring justice? And yet he cries, what, what can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Judah. How does he square the circle of justice and mercy? Beats me. Well, we come to our third constellation Jesus and God's heart. Uh, Capital cities are, are magnets, aren't they? They always have been, they always will be, I guess. They will always sort of draw in, suck in the talented and the ambitious, the wealthy and energetic from far and wide. And the more influential the nation, the wider the draw into the capital. That much is obvious. Jerusalem was by no means an influential city in the Roman Empire, but it was still, nevertheless, it was a magnet for pilgrims to the temple and covenant people in Jesus' day. So what is Jesus' reaction when he approaches it? For that final time. Knowing all too well what will take place. Luke's gospel makes a big point of this. Because early on in Luke's gospel we see Jesus resolutely setting out for Jerusalem. But in Matthew you get the same sort of idea. Perhaps not as uh, emphatically. But in Matthew 23, Jesus knowing full well that this is the place of his execution. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent to you, how often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you're not willing. Hosea 11, verse 8. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is arised. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not come against their cities. Do you notice that? God is not a man. He never holds grudges, but always seeks reconciliation. Whatever it takes. The question is, will the people be willing? Chapter 11, verse 11 of Hosea has an even more amazing vision. They will come from Egypt, trembling like sparrows, from Assyria, fluttering, like doves, I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord, like a hen gathering her chicks. But how? How will God resolve this dilemma? Well, we come to the fourth and final constellation. Chapter 14, verses 4 and 5 I will heal their waywardness and love them freely for my anger has turned away from them. I'll be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like a lily. Isn't that beautiful? That's the hope. But do you see how it contains the means too in just a few points of light in this constellation blink and you miss them but they're there it's just a hint though you don't get it fleshed out you can't see how this is going to work but you see my anger has turned away from them notice he never says there are no grounds for anger no he is just there are grounds for anger but just that it's turned away how? Uh, Hosea doesn't actually tell us. I, I don't know whether he fully understood or knew himself. Maybe. Maybe not. But I love the imagery, don't you? You remember how we saw that Israel's love for God, their chesed, was like the morning dew that just gets burned off with the rising sun? Well, now that imagery is turned around. Now God's care and sustenance is the dew to help the lily blossom as a result of his anger being turned. Matthew doesn't uh, mention this act of turning God's wrath explicitly, but it is surely there, isn't it? At the very start even, when Matthew explains why this child is given that name. He's called Jesus because he will save people from their sins. Not saying there are no sins, but just saying they can be saved from them. That's what his name means. That is why he said, the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things that he must be killed and on the third day rise again, Matthew 16. And this is... The key to what is perhaps the most astonishing words in Hosea, chapter 13, verse 14. I will deliver this people from the power of the grave, I will redeem them from death. Where, O death, are your plagues? Where, O grave, is your destruction? Isn't that a sort of lightning bolt, a sort of bolt from the blue? Where did that come from? A star in a dark sky. We join the lines, uh, join the dots with these lines, and what do we see? Well, it's, it's obvious, isn't it? It's not arbitrary, it's not just sort of conspiracy theories and sort of joining things that don't really deserve to be joined. No, this, this is the plan. This is God's dilemma being resolved by God himself. And Hosea could never have known the details, but he did know God's purpose to redeem a sinful people, to bring them back from where they'd been scattered, to bring them new life out of death, because, of course, he is the God of life. There will be life after life. Death is not the end. Jesus has blazed the trail Jesus, the true Israel, Jesus, the sacrifice for sins, Jesus, the Lord of life, the temple, the great high priest, the lamb that was slain, Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life. Jesus, the Lord of all, by whom and for whom and through him, all things are made and have their being. Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. The one who must go to Jerusalem, be handed over, spat at and jeered, strung up and asphyxiated. The one who must defeat death. Because at the cross, uniquely, impossibly, unexpectedly, overwhelmingly, incredibly, God solves the dilemma. He squares the circle. Wrath and mercy meet. For there, as Paul would say in Romans, he is just and the one who justifies. At the same time, who could believe it? How on earth was this even conceivable? Well, only in the mind of God. But many people dismiss it, don't they? They look at the cross and say, oh, that's ridiculous. Why do you worship a dead guy on a wooden beam? It's absurd. It's weak. It's stupid. Well, let us close where Hosea closes. Friends, I mean, after all this, who is wise? Let them realize these things about time. (laughs) Who is discerning? Let them understand. The ways of the Lord are right. We know his character. We acknowledge him. We have knowledge of him. We love him. We are faithful to him because we know what he's like. And so the righteous walk in those ways, but the rebellious stumble in them. Who is wise? Who is strong? Who is the philosopher of this age? Well, surely the wise person, who is this figure that appears all the way through the Bible, but particularly in the wisdom literature and the Psalms and Proverbs and so on. The wise person is the opposite of the foolish person, obviously, and the foolish person says in his heart, There's no God or at least no God that you can follow or believe or trust or expect to do anything or to hear from. But the wise man, as Jesus himself said, puts his feet on rock. Who understands, who loves, who is faithful to the God's revealed Wise man, Jesus Christ, he calls us to trust him, to walk with him, to stick with him. And here's the point, and we touched on this yesterday, to stick with him even in our failures. Because our failures are not enough to push him away until we push him away. How I've longed to gather you, my chicks, if you're willing Who is wise? Well, I hope by now it's entirely obvious. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you trembling, acknowledging our weakness, our helplessness, our lack of desert. We know that we depend on you for all that we are and have, that you feed and water and you help us and make us satisfied, and yet we turn from you again and again. Lord, we're amazed that you have us back, but even more than all of that, Lord, you have enabled your wrath to turn from us, that you save us from yourself by saving us by yourself in your Son. May we be truly wise and strong in him, even in the midst of our folly and our weakness. For your glory's sake, amen.